You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Here's the deal with the book of Esther. And this is just kind of from experience of talking to people about Scripture in general and the book of Esther in particular. The book of Esther might not be what you think. What do I mean? When some people think about the book of Esther, they often compare Esther with the book of Ruth, right? Both named after women, both located in the Old Testament. But that's actually where the comparison ends. Ruth is a story of sacrifice, loyalty, and love. And there are plenty of Christological connections in the book of Ruth, like Boaz being this redeemer as a type of Christ, for example. In contrast, Esther's actually really dark. There's heavy drinking, sexual immorality, and a genocidal plot. The book of Esther seems to be more about backroom politics, and the savviest politician wins. At least, that's what it looks like. Esther, for my view, is unlike any other book in the Bible. It is is unique. So in the next several weeks, we're going to see how God, how he takes the messiness of people, because the book of Esther is just a messy book with messy people who are living in messy circumstances, and there's politics going on all around them. In the next several weeks, we're going to see how God takes this messiness and brings it about for his good end. Like, can you relate to that? Do you live a messy life? I know I do. Yet, God is at work. This book is full of ups and downs. Unwanted drama enters. And there's times when God seems absent. Have you ever felt like that? And in these moments, you have to ask, is it true? Is God absent? Here here is a key point in Esther, and you will be encouraged to apply this to your life. In Esther, what we will see, excuse me, say it differently, what we see actually points us to what we do not see initially. Of course, you can't rightly understand the book of Esther without remembering the theological backdrop of what's going on. So two weeks ago, preached on the providence and redemption of God. Those are really important, uh, key theological terms. You're going to need to remind yourselves about the providence and redemption of God as we go through the book of Esther. Also, to rightly read Esther, you need to know that the story is explicitly Jewish. More Jewish than what we initially see. Here's how Christopher Ashe, he's a professor, encourages us to read Esther. And I quote, We need to pull back the camera from the specifics of this period in Old Covenant history to ask what the Bible as a whole tells us about the Old Covenant people of God. We need to be very clear that the designation, the Jews, is not at heart 
an ethnic marker. That's important. It's not an ethnic marker. Rather, it is a religious marker and specifically a covenant marker. It is a term that denotes the people who are in a covenant with the Lord, the God of the Bible. What we're going to be pressed up against here is what is going on, O oh God? Are you faithful to keep your promises with your covenant people? And that question just kind of lingers as we begin the book of Esther. Back in Genesis, God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham. God chose a people of faith for himself, and his people are called to bless the nations, right? The book of Esther is set at a time and place where you're left wondering. You're left, will God keep his promises? But by the time we're done with Esther, we will see that God always keeps his covenant promises with his covenant people. And before I begin, I want to mention that my approach to this book is totally different from how I've approached other sermon series. And many of you are accustomed to going through books of the Bible at an exceptionally slow pace, right? I think one time I preached on two words, you know, that kind of pace. I tend to turn over every stone and every verse. Well, just get ready for another approach. Esther reads like a novel, right? The theological themes are not initially obvious. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, and the book reads like a script from a movie. Therefore, we're going to go through ten chapters and probably five or six sermons. We'll be looking at several chapters uh, simultaneously, which means I want to encourage you to go read the book of Esther for yourself. Uh, Read it before you come to church. If you are an audible person, like you want to hear things, Download the ESV app. They got an audible uh, option. And if you really want to up your game, download the Dwell app. Please take time to read the book of Esther as we go through this sermon series. So I'm going to pray. I need God's help. And then let's get into the details. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. You have the book of Esther in the canon, in, in Holy Scripture for a reason, and it's for us. And Lord, you're going to be teaching us through the book of Esther. And so I pray that you give me clear words. Help me to speak to the mind and to the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. We know your word is inerrant. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. And so we come under your word this morning. So help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me start with this. Have you ever had the feeling that the system's working against you? Um, If you're a Christian, you should sense the system is working against you. To say it differently, uh, the machinery of the world is not working for you. Even systems with good intentions can negatively affect God's people. Why? Because we live in a world where sickness and wickedness still hold sway. I mean, we see it with our eyes. It's obvious. Turn on the news if you dare. We live in a world where the devil attempts to see Christians marginalized and compromised. Don't believe me? Consider these examples. Here is a list of countries where it is illegal to be a Christian. Illegal. Or if you're a Christian, you're going to be persecuted at the very least. Here's a bunch of governmental systems stacked against the people of God. North Korea. Go try to be a Christian there. 
Afghanistan. Good luck. Been there. Before the Taliban took it back over. It was scary then. It's worse now for Christians. Somalia. Black Hawk Down. Remember that? That didn't go well. Go try being a Christian there. Libya, Pakistan, Sudan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, China. I could easily name 10 more countries where the people of God exist in a system, in in particular here, a governmental system that's working against them. To say it differently, there seems to be such little hope for Christians in these cultures, in these environments. Some of these countries are communistic, which, are, which is atheistic at its core. So these countries, obviously, um, Islam is dominant. That does not say every communist hates Christians or every person who practices Islam hates Christians. It's not my point. But you see how the systems in general are working against Christians. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Pastor Sean, we live in the United States, so we're, we're good, right? We good? Got some heads shaking? No, you're right. We're not good. Perhaps one of the most significant influences of the American system is that we've become too comfortable with capitalism. Did I get on any nerves there? Now listen, I'm a big fan of the Constitution of the United States. I'm a big fan of capitalism, generally speaking. But there is danger in the excess that has resulted in capitalism. Materialism takes hold in the heart, pushing out Jesus and making new idols. That's what's going on. Money's not the issue. The love of money is the issue. In America, the devil's work is being done in the shadows. We lust over a new car, a bigger ring, or that college degree from that prestigious university, etc., etc., etc. And I am here to tell you, resist the temptation to embrace the ease and comfort of this world. Because the moment you embrace the ease and comfort of this world is when you begin to compromise your integrity before the Lord. In the book of Esther, the people of God are going to face potential persecution, physical persecution, and the temptation toward materialism. So as we make our way through Esther, you have to grasp two realities. First, you should not be comfortable in this world. The song that Ryan introduced us this morning is so helpful. Glory awaits. There's more to come than what you experience here and now as you sit. Hebrews 13, 14 says this, For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. I mean, I'm preaching to myself more than anyone else this morning. And we also read in 1 Peter 2.11 that God's people are sojourners and exiles. A person who so- sojourns does not get comfortable with the surroundings, right? A person that lives in exile longs to go home. Do you think you're home right now? You are not. You are in exile, living in this world, and we long for a better place, our heavenly home. The setting for the book of Esther is a place of comfort and ease. So, 
First reality we have to contend with, don't be comfortable. Second, even though the devil produces evil and wickedness, there is still hope. There's always hope. For the people of God, there's a profound reality that God is working all things together for good, right? God is, pro- God is providentially orchestrating everything to his redemptive end. In Esther, we will be repeatedly slapped in the face by the abundance of evil and wickedness trying to work against the people of God. However, behind the scenes, behind the scenes of what we read, God is doing something marvelous. God is still at work in this wicked world, then and now. I need to caution you and myself, frankly, about how not to read the book of Esther. This is a common way to read Esther, and I'm going to tell you, here's the warning. As we learn about King Asuerus, that gets pronounced several different ways. Dean pronounced it one way. My wife pronounces it another way. I'm going to say Asuerus. As we learn about Asuerus, Esther, Mordecai, and Haman, be careful not to overly moralize their actions. There will be times when we'll be left wondering, why did they do that? We're going to be wondering that later today as I preach. Why did they do that? Why did Mordecai do that? And here's the principle that tends to be true when you read any passage from the Bible. When you overly moralize the Bible, it is easy to miss the greater story arc of Scripture. Yes, the Bible speaks to morality and ethics. I mean, we have Ten Commandments, right? As we look at the story, I'm going to point out many lessons for us to learn, right? There's, there's morality and ethics in that. But we don't want to overly moralize the book of Esther. There are times when we see unsavory characters like King Asuerus, and their immorality helps us to see the terrible consequences of sin. But we need to read the story with the greater picture in view. We can't get lost. So ethics and morality are always set within the context of God's redemptive plan. But as you read Esther, you will ask, why did a follower of God do that? And there is no answer. There is silence because the question is going to miss the point. Now, on to our story. The book of Esther opens up telling us that King Ashuerus was ruling the great empire of Persia. Might also call it Medo Persia. The empire of Medo Persia extended from India to Ethiopia, which is about 2.1 million square miles. The empire was vast. The land of Canaan, the promised land, and Jerusalem were located in this empire. Because of the Babylonian exile, which took place years before Esther, many Jews were forced to relocate to various parts of what we now know as the Middle East, including the city of Susa. What is interesting about the historical context of Esther is that two generations had passed from the time King Cyrus, when he was reigning over Persia, allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. As a side note, you can go read Nehemiah and Ezra for that context of when the Jews were allowed to go back. So to review, years before Esther, years before, most Jews lived in Jerusalem, right? Then Nebuchadnezzar came and evicts many of the Jews, says, nope, we're taking over the land and you got to go. As a result, Jews began to live all over the Middle East. Years after Nebuchadnezzar, another king comes in and says, hey, you can go back. But not all Jews went back home. For example, the families of Esther and Mordecai did not go back. And that's why we are in Susa. 
There are Jews in Susa who could have gone back but chose to stay. Did they stay because they were rooted, right? They got a job, got friends, don't want to leave. Did they stay because it was comfortable, right? Did they stay because parents had children, right? And the children grew up and they got married and they had children. All of a sudden it's like, how do you leave all that? The grandkids. We don't know why they stayed. I mean, the United States is full of people who trace their roots to another country just one generation ago, but all they know is living in the U.S., right? Whatever the reason, many Jewish people maintained a presence throughout the Persian Empire. And as we're going to see later in Esther, people in high positions of authority took note of the Jewish presence. But unfortunately, there were people in positions of power who wanted to stack the deck against the people of God. The hostility toward God's people is so great that some people would even share their faith. So, we are in Susa, two generations after the Jewish people were allowed to go back, and approximately 400 years before the birth of Christ. And in chapter 1, we read about several parties being thrown. If you like parties, this is your book. Two by the king, one done by the queen. The first feast lasted 180 days. And at this particular feast, there were military, the military presence, political leaders. And we read in verse 4, He, the king, King Ashawaris, showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. 180 days. That seems like a really long party. Probably what happened is that you have a feast, people go home. You have another feast, people go home and then they come back. And that kind of pattern was, was going on. But this pattern took place for like six months. The takeaway from this first feast is that King Ashwares aimed to impress the elite class of the Persian Empire. Like if you slow down and reread the first half of chapter 1, the author is trying to focus on the king's lavish lifestyle. We are meant to see that King Ashwares is the most influential person in the world. He is the one with all the nuclear codes. This is an, an essential point because it helps us to get our minds around the actions of Esther and Mordecai in chapter 2. They're dealing with the most powerful person in the world. So at this first feast, King Ashawaris is aiming to oppress. 180 days, 6 months. The second feast that we read about was for the people in the Susa Citadel. Susa is the city, right? And within the city, we had the citadel or a palace, and many people worked in the palace. The second feast was much shorter. It only lasted seven days. That's a manageable college party. Well, not 180 days, seven days, okay. But between verses 4 and 7, our passage goes out of the way to describe more of the king's lavish lifestyle. The king had couches of gold. Like, how do you even do that? I don't know, but they were gold. I mean, I don't even sound comfortable to sleep on. Silver and golden cups to drink wine. Not just silver, silver. Some of you got silver at home, that's great. Silver and gold to drink wine? All right. And in verse 8, it says the king put into place a royal decree for the party. Like, it's not enough to have the party. We're going to put a royal decree about the party. There are no restrictions. <laughs> that's the royal decree. Show up to the party, guess what? No restrictions. If you want to drink a barrel of wine, have at it. Suppose you don't want to drink at all, cool. 
at this party, you do you is the rule. Now, concurrent with this second party is another party given by Queen Vashti. This party was for all the women in the palace, verse 9. So presumably, King Ashwaris had a party for the men, and Queen Vashti has a party for the women. I'm explaining all this because it's going to set up some of the actions a little bit later. We do not know much about Queen Vashti other than that she was beautiful and lovely to look at, verse 11. The way Queen Vashti is described kind of fits with the overall setting of the king's palace, right? Everything that looks good is being pointed out. The author is also providing a window into the heart of Ashuerus. What matters most to Ashuerus is how others perceive him. For Ashuerus, perception is reality, and everything needs to look good on the outside for the most powerful man, most powerful individual in the world. Now here's a mini lesson. I've got a couple mini lessons throughout this story. As you look at King Ashuerus, perhaps there's a cautionary, ta- cautionary tale for us to consider as well. How much does perception matter to you? Just let the question land. How much does perception matter to you? A, a person doesn't need a lot of stuff to care about perception. Frequently, a person's obsession with perception is born out of insecurity. King Ashuerus was a deeply insecure person. And he tried so hard to hide his insecurity by projecting wealth, by projecting might to everyone who was able to see on the outside. But inside, dude was dying. Everything looks good for King Ashuerus until verse 11 and 12. And he kind of gets rocked. You kind of see in these particular verses, he's not as powerful as he may project. On the seventh day of the second party, King Ashuerus decides he wants to show off the beauty of his queen, Queen Vashti. We should not be surprised by this request. Um, the Greek historian Herodotus tells us that Ashuerus was a, was a notorious womanizer. So when, when he and his male companions have had their fill of money, power, and wine, the talks turn to women. Therefore, the order was given. Here's verse 11. Bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and their princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king to the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. You see the insecurity coming out in that last part of the last verse, verse 12. He became enraged. How dare you not obey me? To quote the theologian, William Shakespeare, all that glitters is not gold. And every other pop singer quoted him. Everything owned by King Ashuerus may have looked good, but at this moment, he realized he was not in total control. Queen Vashti refused the most powerful man in the world. And I do not doubt that Queen Vashti knew there were going to be consequences for her actions. Queen Vashti is about to experience the bitter providence of God for refusing the king. 
throughout the book of Esther, we're going to see how the irony in others are controlling the one who's in control. Like King Ashuerus thinks he's in control, but we're going to see over and over, it's actually other people who are in control. The queen refuses the king. The king becomes irate. The king then pivots for help from his seven advisors, seven princes. These princes have, would have been the rulers of territories throughout the Persian Empire. One of the seven, Memucan, hatches a plan to heal the bruised ego of Ashuerus, while at the same time, I think, pushing a personal agenda. Here's a summary of the second half of chapter one. Queen Vashti clearly had to go. She disobeyed. We got to get rid of her now. Her, ro- her royalty was stripped from her. But in addition, like you could have stopped there and been like, all right, she disobeyed. Get her out of here. But no, they, they took it way too far. A complete overreaction. A royal order or a new law was sent out to all 127 provinces in the Persian Empire. It was in a complete power-grabbing and overreaction. A new law was made to ensure that women of every social and economic status would go home and be completely obedient to their husband. Unequivocally obey. Like, I'm a big complementarian. But what's going on here is not complementarian theology. The rational fear is that Because Queen Vashti disobeyed the most powerful person in the world, then what prevents the peasant wife from disobeying her husband? In the minds of these advisors and now the king, there would be social upheaval if every woman everywhere acted like Queen Vashti. It also shows you to another degree how much, how little women were valued. Like we're not talking about Genesis 1, 26, 27 where men and women are created in God's image. There's no theology of image-bearing here with King Ashuerus and his advisors. So what they're doing here is a complete overreaction and probably political as well. When there is social upheaval, those in authority begin to lose their grip on power. Above all things, Ashuerus and his advisors wanted to maintain control. Before looking at chapter 2, we can learn from these opening scenes. We can learn several things from these opening scenes in Esther. As I've studied the book of Esther, I've leaned heavily on Christopher Ashe. I've already quoted him, but I'm going to quote him one more time. This is how he summarizes chapter 1. And so by the end of chapter 1, we have learned that while the empire of the world, he means Persian empire there, the empire of the world is inescapable, meaning when you're in that empire, there's no way of getting out. There are no planes, there are no trains. If you wanted to get somewhere, you're going to hoof it, and it's going to take you months, years to get out of the empire. Like, once you're in the empire, you're there. Nowhere else to go. It's inescapable. Visibly impressive and desperately desired. It just might be as invincible as it would have had for us believe. It is a dangerous environment, but also an absurd place. An absurd place. The people of God have to live here, for there is nowhere else to go. Professor Ash rightly wants us to see that not much has changed in the world, right? Of course, we will eventually see the intent to persecute God's people in Esther, but until then, we live in a world that is absurd. America is Disneyland. I've heard that quoted by John Piper before, and he's absolutely right. We live in Disneyland. It's absurd. 
And we get caught up on it, right? Go to Disneyland, you get on the rides, and you're having fun. And all of a sudden, we forget why we're here to begin with. Of course, we will see the persecution, but until then, there are leaders around the globe and in this country who think they are powerful, right? Yet there is one who is more powerful. That's what Asherah doesn't see. He thinks he's got the power, but there's actually one who's more powerful than him. And the people of God need to push aside the nonsense of the world and look to the one using flawed men and women for his divine purposes. Now, flip the page. Let's go to Esther 2. There are two main events in chapter 2. First, we're introduced to Esther, and we will see how she ascends to be queen. Right? That's really important. Second, we're introduced to Mordecai. Let's look at Esther for a moment, and then we'll need to grapple with how she became queen, because that's really important. It seems Esther is also a recipient of the bitter providence of God, right? She is a Jew, and she is an orphan. We don't know when, but her parents died, which resulted in her cousin Mordecai taking her in. Perhaps the author of the book of Esther gives us an indication of her conflicted soul by pointing to the, to, to the Hebrew name of Esther, Hadassah, as well as her Persian name, Esther. It seems that this future queen is caught between two worlds, the world of her faith, Hadassah, and the Persian world, Esther. Now, I want to pause for a moment to point out the obvious. You might feel, hopefully you feel, tension as well, right? On the one hand, you are a child of God called out of the world to be a part of God's family. Yet, on the other hand, you see and experience all that glitters in American society and culture. Like Esther, it's like we have two names. We feel the tension. The unresolved question for Esther is that by the time we're done with the entire story, do we call her Hadassah? Do we call her Esther? Or is the tension unresolved? Do we call her both? I'll table the answer to the end of our sermon series. What else do we know about Esther? Like Queen Vashti, Esther is beautiful. So why does the looks of Esther matter? In this story, the beauty of Esther was her entry ticket to potentially become the next queen of Persia. You see, when Vashti was removed, a call was sent out to everyone in Susa. A call, another edict went out, and all the beautiful young virgins are to be brought to the king's palace. Vashti was one of those people. Excuse me, Esther was one of those people. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, all this seems really shallow, you're right. It's extremely shallow. I mean, I'm not going to mince words. The process set forth to pick a new queen objectifies women. Like, there's no way around that. I mean, it's truly disgusting. Also, we're going to see sex becomes an idol. And good people are caught up in the political machinery of Persia. They're put into compromising situations. For example, why on earth did Mordecai put forth Esther to try to become the next queen. Like, I know like, we're supposed to be talking about Esther and Mordecai as like, the good people here, and we'll talk more about that down the road, but why did Mordecai do that? 
we do know that Mordecai worked in the palace. He was not naive to the shenanigans of the king. He was well aware of the toxic culture of the palace. Yet in verse 8, Mordecai walks Esther right up to the one who was in charge of vetting the potential queen. Next queen. In a matter of moments, Esther is relegated to a harem. Does that sound like freedom to you? I don't think so. This is a scene where we do not know the motive of Mordecai. We don't know. We need to be careful of reading too much into this passage. Why didn't Mordecai hide Esther? Did Mordecai have no choice? Was Mordecai dialed into, the, into God's greater plan? We don't know his motive. And once again, trying to figure out why kind of misses the point. I mean, here's another mini lesson, if you'd like. Be careful of coming to conclusions of a person's motive if you lack relevant information. Too often, we race to a conclusion only to find out later, upon gathering additional facts, that our conclusion was wrong. Same deal with Mordecai. Like, we can ask why, we can speculate, but at the end of the day, we actually can't answer the question. Holy Scripture is silent. After Mordecai hands over Esther, her life completely changes. Here is what life looked like for Esther and other young women. Let's read Esther 2, verses 12 to 14 at length. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ashuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for women, so we got 12 months, since that was their regular period of beautifying, another six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for women. I'm not great into math. That seems to be two years. When the young women, young woman, went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. The harem was basically a bunch of young virgin women. Okay? We have concubines in this story. We've got harems. They're different. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of, Dean, should I have had you say this word, Shazgaz, Shazgaz, here we go, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. What is being described is, at the very least, a meadow Persian beauty pageant. But this particular beauty pageant ends up being a lot more risque than we might imagine. Let me state what is going on a little differently without being graphic. We are not reading about a PG or PG-13 movie. It's even worse than a rated R movie. The process of King Ashuerus picking a queen is extremely dark, it is sinister, and it is evil. It's a massive abuse of power. I mean... There's certainly a trail I could go down right now because we see a lot of this still going on in, a, in the world today. Men who have a massive abuse of power abusing women. Before moving on, I do need to address the tension created in Esther chapter 2. How is this story thus far about God? <laughs> right? 
Well, are you God? So far, it seems like the story is about the people of God who are putting into challenging situations, to, at least, to say that way, and make poor choices, potentially. First, the story of Esther is not over. She need to remind you that. We are not over. There are more than eight chapters for us to look at. It would take reading the entire story of Esther to see the redemptive hand of God. Chapters 1 and 2 are the introduction to the story of Esther. Resolving the tension is going to have to wait. And you know, there is more to learn about your life from looking at Esther 1 and 2. If you are a Christian, God is not done with you. Had a messy life? I know I have. God's not done with you, Christian. You have chapters in your life that still need to be lived out. Even if you feel the tension in your life, you can look to God to find the resolution. Second, God can work in and through a person's poor choices or even wicked choices, as we see with Asherahs. God does not excuse a person's choices, especially sin, but God can bring about good through wicked actions. It's possible Mordecai made several poor choices. And again, I say that built upon some assumptions. As a father of daughters and a Christian, it would be unthinkable for me to hand over another woman knowing what the end result is going to be. It's unthinkable. However, does his actions mean that God is distant and not at work? Nope. Not at all. Quite the contrary, the unspoken providence of God is at work. Let's apply this to our everyday life. Is God directing your story of redemption? Right? It's the question we're left with in the book of Esther, especially as we get to the end of chapter 2. If you are a Christian, the answer is unequivocally yes. When God sets his electing love on a person, you cannot outrun his plan of redemption for your life. Now, if you're not a Christian, there is no difference between you and King Asuerus. You are living for yourself, controlled by your desires. But in the Christian and non-Christian, God is at work. There's a massive difference in what God is doing in a child of wrath versus a child of God, but God is providentially at work. Now, what about poor choices, right? We see a lot of poor choices in Esther. What about your poor choices? I know I've made many poor choices in my life. For me and any Christian, I am simultaneously responsible for my poor choices and sin while at the same time forgiven and free, right? Not going to escape responsibility, but I'm also forgiven and free. And I'm free to make better choices for the glory of God. I'm no longer condemned, but empowered by the grace of God. If you're not forgiven, that means you are not a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are forgiven. Now back to Esther. How did God use Esther's situation? Go to verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Is there a way we can give credit to Esther for making the best of a poor situation? 
perhaps. But is Esther's rags-to-riches story possible without God? I'm more comfortable answering the latter question. With no disrespect to Esther, it's hard to see how an orphaned Jewish girl is made queen of the most powerful empire in the world aside from the providential hand of God at work. It takes the unspoken providence of God to take this midday television drama and like make it a reality. That's really important because that's going to set us up as we turn the page to chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5. It was God at work through wicked people and wicked moments to bring about Queen Esther. Chapter 2 ends with an abrupt transition to another scene in our story. Here's what's going on. Mordecai, again, the cousin of Esther, happens to be hanging out, air quotes here, everyone, happens to be hanging out at the right place at the right time. And he happens to overhear two of the king's eunuchs plotting an assassination against the king. And we'll talk more about the providence of God. He happens to be there. No, God had him there. (laughs) Mordecai tells Esther about this plot to kill the king, and Esther tells the king, and the two knuckleheads who were were hanged for their treason. And the incident was recorded. Now, you're going to want to put a pin in this part of the story because we're actually going to revisit this in future sermons. This is a really important part. So I'm just making you aware of it, knowing that we're going to address it more later. There is one more part of the story that is worth mentioning. In chapter 2, verse 10, and again in verse 20, Mordecai clarifies to Esther that she is to keep her faith secret. Like, don't talk about the fact that you're a Jew. This is confusing, potentially, especially when we read the New Testament, that our faith is supposed to be shared with the entire world, right? Like, Jesus is like, you got a lamp here, and don't hide it. You know, let the lamp shine so everyone can see. <laughs> it's like the exact opposite going on here in Esther. Mordecai's like, shh, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. Well, remember that we're dealing with flawed people. It's really important to remember as we read Esther. We are dealing with flawed people. Further, the concealment of their faith likely indicates a growing prejudice about the people of God in Persia. Jews were not well-liked. Therefore, less is more for Esther here. There's no question that in the book of Esther, the people of God, as represented by Esther and Mordecai, live in a world that is absurd and that is not their own. Their lives are messy and complicated. They find themselves in a political structure that is not advantageous for them, and the enticements are in Susa or through the roof. But again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But in all this, then and now, God is doing a million things we fail to know or acknowledge God is providentially at work. The unfolding story of redemption in Esther and in your life highlights the one true king, King Jesus, who secured redemption through his life, death, and resurrection. You can only understand Esther when it's set in the greater story of what God has done through Christ, what redemption means because of Jesus. And if you think I've been hard on Mordecai and Esther... Be patient. By the time we're done with this sermon series, 
we will see how these characters, in their own way, show us the shape of a coming Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.